You're listening to the Digital Forensics Files podcast with your host, Tyler Hatch from DFI Forensics. Are you a lawyer who wants to learn about how you can use digital forensics in your modern day lawsuit? Great. Go to dfiforensics.ca to learn more. If you have questions about your particular case, we'd love to hear from you. Consultations are always free, so email us or call us today. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Digital Forensics Files podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Hatch from DFI Forensics. Today, I'm really excited to have a great guest on the podcast. I've got uh, Jessica Hyde here. She is the Director of Forensics at Magnet Forensics, coming up on five years. Well done. Um, Jessica, you're a real leader in the field. You've got a real storied history in uh, in your career. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about uh, all the things going on, but congratulations on your, your role with Magnet. It's coming up on five years, if I'm not mistaken. It is. Uh, first, thank you so much for having me on, Tyler. I think this is a great program, and I really love the perspective that you bring to everything you do, both having the technical digital forensics background as well as the legal background. So it's just a pleasure to get to sit down with you. But yeah, been at Magnet now for almost five years and loving every day of it. That's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. There's, uh, there's a lot of people that are really enthusiastic and passionate about our field. I see a lot of happiness in what we do, which is really awesome. Um, yeah, thanks for your comments about that. I actually, when I, when I first, um, when I first kind of entered the field, I was really sheepish about not wanting to portray myself as a lawyer and, um, which, which I'm not, um, I just have a law degree and I used to practice law, but yeah, there, there's such right. a benefit to, to the perspective for, for the work that we do, which is predominantly with civil litigation lawyers. And they actually, um, quite love the value add that I bring there. And yeah, it really allows me to lean on my um, skills and training from that previous vocation uh, without actually being a lawyer, which to me is all of the magic because I was not a very happy lawyer, <laughs> as it turns out. So yeah, it works really but, well. You, you know, that's such a beauty of our field is some people you have to like have a comp sci degree or come here from a specific technical background. But one of the beauties is when people come from other vocations before coming in digital forensics and they're really able to amp up that influence of that background that brings such unique perspectives because in investigative work, which is what we're doing, it's all about mm -hmm. how your mind sees the problem and every different right. background sees a problem differently. And I love that. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard you talk about that on your podcast, which is, um, well, do I have this correct catch up or is it a play on words where it's catch up? Oh, it's, it is cash up. Yes, okay, it is a play on words. But we say we say cash is in the internet, cash or the cash. Uh, that's data, what yeah. I figured. Yeah, I love it. I love a good pun. So I'm all over the, the and yeah, by the way, you have a dizzying pace with cash up the weekly oh, podcast and an hour length episodes. They're really great. But I just yeah, I, I, I have a coronary just coronary just thinking about um, your schedule <laughs> that you keep there. It's it's insane. So good work there. It's really good content. Thank though. you. Thank um, you. So, Tell me, speaking of backgrounds and getting into the field, so you you kind of came out of a military background. Is that fair to say? Or yeah. Talk about um, the progression from, from military into forensics. Sure. So I was in the United States Marine Corps where I fixed Harriers. Yeah. And that's what allowed me to get an electronics background. I, it's what inspired me to get my undergrad in electronics engineering while I was actively on duty. So then when I got out, I took a job actually reverse engineering IEDs, improvised explosive devices wow. uh, for as a contractor for the government using the skills I had learned soldering and fixing jets 
and the engineering degree I got because I was inspired and realized because the government told me it was what I would do well, right? They trained you to do that job. So I got that engineering degree based on the fact that that's where they thought my aptitude was. And it turned out being something I loved. And so when I started working in the reverse engineering lab, um, a lot of IEDs at that time were connected to phones. And this is pre-smartphone. So this is prior to, to the iPhone and even the, the, the first um, BlackBerry smartphones, which people forget right. that BlackBerry actually introduced those. So, uh, mm -hmm. so, so before we even got to smartphones, they would be connected as trigger devices and IEDs. And so decided to start trying to figure out how to get the data off of them, right? Now, the reason that was more of a problem was I started on forensics on devices that had been blown up. So everything I started doing digital forensics analysis on, I had to attack from an engineering level first yeah. to extract the data because I worked on things that were set on fire, blown up, shot, etc. Um, and so, yeah, and then started doing traditional digital forensics uh, on those recovered data systems off of there. So I was re responsible for both the schematic derivation and analysis of the improvised explosive device system, uh, the recovery of the data from the destroyed device, whatever it was, as well as then the digital forensic analysis, providing the reporting about the users who were using those devices and where those devices may have come from and where they may have been located. So then I said, wow, this digital forensics aspect is like so intriguing. So I decided to go get a master's in computer forensics from George Mason while I was doing that work. And then I realized that I was probably very niche in my digital forensics actual work as compared to then my more broad education. So then I went to work for EY, uh, Ernst & Young right. at the time, now, now they go by EY, uh, so yeah. that I could get more well-rounded. So there I was doing your traditional, more similar probably to what your team is doing, incident response, analysis of employee engagements, wrongful hot fire, uh, HR disputes, those kinds of analysis, but as well as IR, and so worked in that consulting. Uh, and then after that, I did um, go back to doing government work leading a mobile forensics team for the second time in my career, but at the National Media Exploitation Center uh, here in the States as a government contractor. And that was just incredible work. I uh, spent most oh. of my time there solving the hardest mobile forensics challenges there were uh, and, uh, you know, decoding a lot of app data, writing a lot of parsers in there. And uh, then I came to Magnet about five years ago. Wow, so that's, that's, that's a lot to unpack. Story path. That, that is not weird. That is absolutely fascinating. That's one of the best entries into the field that I probably ever heard. So I, I just think that's, oh, that's completely wild. Let's put some dates on this kind of stuff. When you were looking at the sure. IID kind of stuff, um, what, what was that? We're talking like early 2000s or, or what? Uh, mid 2000s. Yeah, mid 2000s through till uh, about 2011, 2012. Yeah. And that's when I went over to EY. Wow, and that's then, that's really interesting. I could see how that would be just really fascinating, really capture your imagination. And, and what a perfect blend of your skill set into what you ended up doing. I think that's absolutely fascinating. Right? Yeah. And it's it's kind of interesting because you would think, you know, do you use those skills that you used to fix a Harrier every day? Yeah, I do. Uh, and and that's that's really fascinating, right? So I'm very fascinated with a lot of hardware acquisitions. So I've done a lot of things like that. I actually have a IoT device that I will not name until that presentation goes live to tear apart physically tonight. 
slab and de-solder chips and 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 That's try awesome. to read them but it's like how i did the the alexa work which i um some people may have seen and and stuff like that where i still do a lot of um, hardware-based acquisitions because that's my fun time. Right. So, so I, en I enjoy that, but it's the, the mentality of the troubleshooting of trying to figure out what is wrong and how do you put that puzzle together? Mm -hmm. And that is just a skill that once taught can be applied in so many ways. And it's probably the most critical skill in forensics. I bet. Yeah, for sure. Um, make no apologies for the fact that you enjoy stuff on your personal time. I got a Celebrite <laughs> cert on Christmas Day 2020. That's how much of a loser I am. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what, what I mean. This this field just kind of captures your imagination. You're just like, oh, I'm bored. It's a pandemic. Uh, what can I do today? Oh, yeah. Kind of want to do that. Let's talk about something which is the, the professional desire to do things to a high level of completion, which... I'm fixated on the fact that you fixed Harrier jets. I can't imagine there's a lot of uh, margin for error in doing a job like that. No, and it's... And that, that's one of the most important skills to nat naturally want to do something as perfect as it can humanly be done is something that's so important in our field. You can't just sort of quit and be like, ah, that's enough. Exactly, because, enough. you know, when you're fixing a jet, you've got to remember that a real live person is going to go in that aircraft. Yeah. And that that aircraft is literally, especially in the military, jam-packed full of explosives. So even if you think about the ejection seat, right, yeah. there are CADs in the ejection seat that allow it to take off. So there's literally explosives in the ejection seat, even if the jet has got no explosives on it. And if you have an electronic signal that has been being sent the wrong way, you can have anything from engine failure to misreads on fuel levels to anything that could be causing um, mm -hmm. life or death injuries or even while you're doing the maintenance. So, um, you know, if you don't follow everything in the publication, someone could die. Right. And, you know, when you apply that to forensics, I mean, I literally have worked, um, I, I can't talk about specifics about cases I've worked, but I've worked cases with living victims, uh, cases where I knew that my work definitively outcome of somebody living or dying, but all of our work is because we work in the world of justice and of finding truth, our work, our work is dependent livelihoods, right? Our work is dependent on if if we that prevent lives from being lost. Our work mm -hmm. when we protect children is yeah. literally saving the physical and mental lives of those children. And so it doesn't matter what sector of this field you're in, if you're in incident response, if you're in child exploitation analysis, um, if you're terrorism, if you are in employee dispute matters and that precision when you're talking about truth and evidence, be it exculpatory or inculpatory, is absolutely critical mm -hmm. to know when to stop. I think that's sometimes the hardest part in an investigation. Right. When, when do we enough? When do we have what we need? Because time is a limited skill. And, or a limited yeah. asset, not a skill. And our skills um, need to be best utilized during that time. So right, that's always right. an equation that's being calculated. I agree. It is an equation. I think that's where we really are 
uh, it's important for us to be um, consultants with our clients because it's important yeah. for them to know exactly that that's that's to me is, is that's more of an issue you want you want to pass on to the client you say listen here's the value in me putting more time into this at your cost um, or whatever the case may be um, you make that decision if you're if you're comfortable stopping here this is where we're at these are things that I can do it's up to you to 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 take that risk or reward or make that assessment um, so much yeah, and, and I so and consultation back and forth with our clients is absolutely critical for us identifying what the key is the, the, in an engagement is for the client to say find bad because you don't know where to start and stop. And yeah. so that communication is very critical that people there, but also that we're advising our clients. This is what we found. This is the potential, what we could look for next. This is our plan. And we, we just need to be in constant communication, not every second, because then we wouldn't actually get the analysis done, but in regular communication right. so we can make sure needs are being met. And sometimes an engagement yeah. requires pivot. Something new or changes, or the the scope may change based on other investigatory elements. You may discover uh, more custodians of interest. You may discover devices of interest. You might discover that you thought it was just this attack, but now there is this other conflated issue, um, and and we just need to continue that communication through the engagement. Yeah, right. I agree. And as you're talking about it, I'm like, yes, that happens. It's so exciting when it does. And it's, and one of the best things is when it happens and you're like, oh, we've, we've got like 20 or 30 hours in our scope of work. And in 10 hours, we've got everything. Like that's nothing pleases me more than going back to a client saying, guess what? I'm not going to send you this giant bill. I'm going to send you only this. And we got everything that you wanted more. Um, Isn't I, that I, awesome? That that feels really, really good. And, it feels and a lot so of that's working smarter, not harder, right? As yeah. you get better. Right, right. Yeah. My introduction into the field, and I'm not going to name any names, but it was I was at this um, forensics place that was really focused on just really making money, and it was a bad experience mm -hmm. for me. And it, um, that's it's such a bad model to come out in a sales model as a forensics firm. You really have to take more of a pro professional consultant approach, in my opinion. And it's it, it ended up being good because it's the reason why I started my own business because I had a desire to achieve um, greater value to to clients. Um, it was an enormously difficult path having said that um but you know we're, we're here and it's it's exciting and it's uh i'm thrilled every day to to do what we do right um i i actually would be very saddened to work in in an environment like that so i'm sorry that you had that experience but it sounds like you turned it into something very positive it's really exciting to hear because what a metaphor for life right <laughs> absolutely bad experience into positive that's all we can do so yeah, that's awesome. Um, how did your how did your podcast idea start up? I, it looked like you started it in 2020. Yeah, like last summer. I did. So so unlike you, I was not ahead of the curve pre-pandemic starting because I think you started yours in 2019. Uh, I did. So I took were, a healthy hiatus though. Yeah. <laughs> you you were ahead of the curve. Um, a little bit of the opposite for me in my day-to-day -day role with Magnet, I do a lot of extensive travel. Uh, and so the it's something I had been wanting to do, but it really wasn't an opportune time to do it because of the pace at which I spent life on on planes and and meeting with people and, and being in forensics labs. Um, 
so the opportunity of all of the remote work um, made it possible to do that. Now, in no way has work slowed, as anyone right. in this field knows, it has gotten much more intense. But physically being in one location with a reliable internet network meant that it could be something plausible. And right. now we're we're having internal discussions about what we do uh, once travel returns, because I believe I'm back on the road in June. Yeah start traveling again yeah do you find that exciting because i think that's really exciting news i am because yeah. turned in yeah. 2020 right before this all happened i came off of a almost global trip i think i went to singapore five cities in australia went to portland then to waterloo uh ontario and then uh back home new my first in February had been so nice. So this has been a, this has been rewarding in its own way, because if it wasn't yeah. for this situation, I wouldn't have gotten to do things like uh, start cash up and those conversations have been great. But I also do miss the normalcy and um, of people and being able to connect with people in person, because that's how so much of our ideas percolate and how so much yeah. innovation happens is the conversations mm -hmm. we get to have with each other like we're having today. Yeah, I agree. I really miss the the live interactions. I'm, I'm really starting to notice how much I'm missing it now. And it's great that we've all adapted to Zoom and these online Absolutely. platforms and they've adapted to our needs. And I think that's awesome. Um, society really needs to take that leap forward. And I'm talking about like court hearings and all these efficiencies that yes. have really come up in the pandemic. But God, it's going to be nice to actually sit down for somebody and have lunch and, and <laughs> shake their hand. And, oh, yeah, it's it's going to be great. But yeah, no, I, I'm curious about the, the podcast because, um, you know, w was that something that you did you listen to a lot of podcasts or did you just think it'd be a fun way to connect with other people in the community or, or what was the inspiration behind it? So both. So I do a lot of uh, travel. So a lot of times what I would do is I would download a lot of uh, forensics podcasts uh, pre to traveling. So things like the forensic lunch with David Cohen and Matt Sayre, um, shows like uh, 13 Cubed, uh, digital forensics yeah, uh, with Richard Davis, digital forensics survival podcast, uh, this month in forensics with Phil Moore. Uh, so just so many people who I have so much appreciation of uh, who are doing great things, but those are very different types of shows. Uh, and I really wanted to have that time to really get behind the differences in where people are coming from, their story, how they're approaching forensics, but also to introduce um, some of the people who are doing a lot of new and novel things in our community, those people who are, who, so, you know, my idea was in basics, get to know the people who you know in the community, but also get to know the people you should know in right. the community. Right. And I, I think that that's kind of one of the neat things is blending that. I agree. Yeah, that's awesome for sure. Um, yeah. And how's the experience been? Like, I look back at my early episodes, I'm like, oh, they were terrible. I had bad equipment and all the rest of it. And, and yeah, but, um, so it's interesting. Um, so I think we just finished. So yesterday, uh, was a, a great episode and I, I'm not sure what the airing time of this is, but, um, been, I had Katie Nichols on and what an incredible person, but every single episode has been incredible. And, uh, after every single episode, I, I turn to, I am very lucky and I have a producer who handles all effects so I can focus on the interview. Uh, his name's Kevin. He's fantastic. 
and I turn to Kevin after every episode and I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so good. And then like, we've realized at this point that we've said that about every episode. We've loved every episode, but at the yeah. same time, I feel like my interview skills have gotten better. Our equipment has gotten better. Our time right. to uh, prep the episodes in, from a technical perspective has gotten better. Mm-hmm. was my first guest. And I know you've interviewed Brett as well. And he's just yeah. so, so fascinating. So our first episode was fantastic. Just have had great guests the whole time. And, and that's what's made it so amazing is, I mean, how lucky am I? And, and I'm sure you feel the same way, too, that you get to sit down with people who you admire, who are doing yeah. incredible work. And if people who are smarter than us, who have great perspectives, who inspire us, right. who come from different backgrounds, then we're pretty darn lucky. So I, I totally it. yeah, really lucky. Yeah, I. Brett was one of my early guests too. And I just, I'm looking at him on paper. I'm like, wow, he's so interesting. He's got a large uh, social media presence. And he does a lot of training and, um, and, and then he's just this incredibly understated, humble guy about everything that he's ever done. And he's funny and he's just, he's a real guy. <laughs> I really he's, like him. He's and one of guys the greatest a, mentors. So yeah, he's awesome. He, I, you guys had a really great chat. I really he's, enjoyed that episode for sure. Yeah. He's actually going to be, um, and we're, we're technically announcing this tomorrow. So I think I can say this. He's one of our featured uh, speakers for the magnet virtual summit that's coming up in May. So that'll oh, be fantastic. looking towards his, his presentation. Yeah, that's amazing. I'll have to check that out and, and sign up um, if I'm not already signed up. Um, okay, perfect. <laughs> Appreciate that. Okay, so let's just move on. I, I wanted to talk to you as well about this um, DFIR review that you're involved in. Um, just tell everybody who doesn't know about it, um, DFR review, I'll put up a link in the, uh, the show notes and everything like that so that people can go. I wasn't aware of it until uh, you and I synced up, and I think it's awesome. I, I, I'm subscribed and I'm, I'm a member now and I'm really looking forward to, uh, to digging uh, into it further. But tell everybody what, it, what it's all about. Yeah, so this is great. So uh, for those who may be unfamiliar with the academic publishing life cycle, it's, it's a bit, a bit long and the digital forensics community is rapidly changing, right? So data comes out very, very rapidly and what people do to share it is they put it on a blog. So I get yeah. a call from uh, an examiner works for a sheriff's department one day. And she goes, hey, Jessica, I have uh, this case I'm working. It's got a Windows phone. Um, I use methodologies from this blog, Cheeky Forensics Monkey. And can you possibly validate it? Uh, Legal isn't too thrilled with me citing Cheeky Forensics Monkey on the stand. (laughs) Exactly. And I said, you know what, you're in luck. I actually happen to, in my personal collection, have a Windows phone that's that model. I will go ahead, create some test data, validate it for you, and and send you over, you know, something from me saying that I validated this methodology on here. And at that point, we realized that there was a problem because, you know, if you look on thisweekinforensics.com, digital forensics practitioners are putting out between 100 and 250 pieces of content per week per mm-hmm. week, what they're finding and learning with more applications and operating systems, et cetera. But if people need to cite that work, it's 
problematic because it hasn't gone through a peer review process. And one of the reasons is, is we need to rapidly disseminate that. Um, right. I am involved in academic publishing as well. I'm on the editorial board for uh, the journal, Digital Journal of Investigations, and I've published white papers. But those processes take months. I had a paper once that took 14 months to get to publication, but right. it was something that that had long width. It was about standardization of recovery of, of recovered data. Why we don't say deleted is my short nickname for it. <laughs> but but the, the point is, is something like that is longstanding, works well in an academic paper. But something like how to parse the newest version of WeChat does right. not cannot go out for a 14 month review. Some no. papers are much quicker than that, but if it goes out for that kind of academic review, the information is stale by the time it gets published. And the idea yeah. is we want to disseminate so other examiners can be doing it. So right. in uh, DFIR review, a couple of things is one, we allow for pre-publication. So you can have posted it to a blog and then we review it. Two, to provide credibility because people might have to publish under an anonymous name because of the organizations they work for, especially if they work for another law enforcement agency, for example, um, they may be sharing under a pseudonym. So what we do is the reviewers' names are published along with the type of review they did. Did they look at the methodology? Did they review it with data sets provided by the author? Or did they review it with their own generated data sets? And in addition, their comments are appended to the end of the post um, so that their, their comments are included because a lot of times it's comments about future works or omissions or things that it didn't cover and their findings. And then additionally, that entire item is given a DOI number, which makes it a permanent referenceable immutable source. So unlike a regular blog post, which could be a controversial source in a court of law because it can be updated and changed, you right. have an immutable, referenceable source that is peer-reviewed by both practitioners and academics uh, of blog-generated practitioner content. I love that. I, you know, So when I just briefly checked into it, it looked like just a, a, a shared resource environment, but it's so much more than that when you describe it, and that is perfect. Um, yeah, I get and, the whole reference to Cheeky Monkey and Have I Been Pwned. People are like, what is that? You know, and, you know. No, and, and it's brilliant, too, because there are people who have published things that are incredible resources there. So like Daniel Dickerman published his methodology for how to uh, acquire data from Chromebooks there. And that has become such an interesting topic with school resources uh, in terms of online education in the pandemic world because so right. many students have been issued Chromebooks to do schooling from home and those have yeah. become potential targets for targeting children and Chromebooks right. have become there they have grown so much so the fact that that paper along with tooling was published there is like incredible and then from that paper um Actually, Jad Saliba, my boss over at Magnet, our CTO and founder, he actually just created a tool that utilizes that methodology to provide an easy way for people to actually utilize that methodology. So, wow. you know, there's just all of this growing. And that's the whole thing in forensics, right? And we're all continually building on each other and discovering yeah. and sharing our resources. And it's so critical that we do that uh, because there's just so much. <laughs> 
Yeah, and the it, everything's just developing so quickly with technology, and it's just this giant cat and mouse game that I don't think people realize. Um, you know, we're, we're this this week alone, we we've gotten so many files about this whole Microsoft uh, Exchange oh server gosh, vulnerability. Yeah. Um, first of all, I didn't know so many people are still running on-prem servers, um, but can, yeah, it's... Can we, can I, can I make one comment there? Um, and it, yeah. it, not, not you at all, but some people in the community have been a little bit negative about the fact that so many people have on-prem servers, but I'd like to remind folks that there are plenty of reasons to have an on-prem server, particularly if your environment involves equipment that cannot be, um, connected to the cloud, be this because you have older yeah. equipment uh, that's worth millions and millions of dollars in some healthcare arenas or some yeah. uh, some arenas with ICS, and they still need to be able to communicate across the network and send local emails, or even deployed situations uh, where you're moving a lab in a box or an, or an environment in a box, uh, and you have mm -hmm. to be in some deployed scenario, but you still need to be able to communicate uh, via that method without being connected to the network. And, and I think we just need to remember that there are real reasons uh, that not everybody is on it with 365. <laughs> that, no, and that's a great point because yeah, my my previous impression was just like these are just dinosaurs that refuse to go to the cloud. But I'm like, oh, there are actually valid reasons. Once I once I started to sort of turn my mind to it, yeah. So um, I was I'm guilty of being one of the ignorant, foolish. Uh, people it, it's not. It's not. So so it's <laughs> it's just a matter of not being familiar with those environments, and that's okay. And that's why we yeah. need all of that diversity and perspective. But it's also why you know we have to. We have to ask our, our clients a lot of times interesting questions about the ways in which they work. I totally understand yeah. Stan, not not uh, not upgrading from from Windows 7 if that's what your required operating system is for that five million dollar piece of equipment. Right. <laughs> right. right. For sure. No, I agree. Yeah, exactly right. And my my whole point about those kind of situations. If you go in and you have to make that decision, that's that's totally legitimate. But as long as somebody's giving you the advice that yes. there's a risk to using that, and you go in knowing the risk, then that's that's a completely legitimate business uh, decision. And Tyler, um, I think that's really really key, right? Like everything we do, and that's why it's important to consult with your forensics examiners as a business. Is you need the information um, a lot of times as a business. Our clients need that information to be able to make educated risk assessments, to be able to make mm -hmm. educated decisions about things right. before right. they become a problem, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Because heads will roll when they didn't <laughs> when when you weren't told, um, and that falls too often on the uh, the poor IT community. Um, Jessica, I can see why you would make a fantastic teacher. You're at uh, George. George Mason University. That's correct. correct. Yeah. Yeah. How long have you been teaching? Um, I've been teaching for five years now. Really? George Mason. Yeah, I love it. I teach uh, the mobile device forensics course in their graduate program. So a 700 right. level mobile device forensics course, and we cover everything from acquisition to analysis. And I'm really evil and make my students do everything on the command line before they ever get to touch a forensics tool. Because Perfect. it's so important to understand the why and what to do when your tools break and when things change. And mm -hmm. if we understand those reasonings, we can testify to them. We can adapt. Right. And so, so you do need to understand that, but then also how to leverage tools to be able to scale up and do what we need to do smartly uh, so, that yeah. we can, so that we can work and meet the time demands and deliver on time. 
yeah, I I agree. I'm a huge proponent of, <clears throat> excuse me, always understanding everything that's behind these buttons that we push. And there are software tools that allow things to be easier and more efficient. But if you don't understand what's going on in the background and why, you're doomed. Like you got to put in the work. There's Absolutely. No, there's no getting around it. So I like your approach there. That, that's amazing. Do your students like it when they, uh, like, so... this isn't what I thought. So I think I, I I think so. I mean, my my reviews on like course rating are are pretty good. <laughs> so okay. uh, yeah, and, you know, um, I actually give my students uh, a choice of, of three projects at the beginning of the term. So they have a choice to do new mobile forensics research, and they must blog about it publicly. That's never mm -hmm. been done before by the end of the term. Or they have to do two reviews for DFIR review where they're doing a in-depth review and they are sub reviewers to me so I'm reviewing their content in case anyone's wondering how that works with DFIR review so I'm reviewing right. their review before it gets applied and I'm basically going through the review as well uh, and then the third choice is they have to write a standard operating procedure on mobile device forensics and SOP that involves everything from seizure to acquisition to analysis to reporting that's excellent. Really good foundational skills. That's amazing. And they have to do um, one. So I, I understand not everybody is comfortable with publishing. I understand not everybody can publish. Um, because I'm in DC Metro, I do have a lot of uh, government uh, students who, who are not allowed to, and they get that SOP project. But I've had at least seven students tell me that that SOP is now the SOP for their lab. It's a, These are all iterative projects, and I work with all of them on them. So I, yeah. I love it. And then the thing I'm most excited about is the things they wind up sharing with the community. Uh, and some of them even wind up producing things like as a matter of course for their research. Um, this past term, we we contributed, my, not we, me, but my students contributed, I think, four or five uh, iOS 14 images to Digital Corpora, which are now available for anyone to go ahead and use as a resource for testing and validation. That's awesome. I love to see that kind of uh, thing going on. It actually makes me want to be involved in some way. And I... I Everything that I do, I'm always in the back of my mind thinking about the student community and the future people that are trying to get into the the, the community right now because I see a, a bit of a lack of opportunity, which is um, it's difficult to get an opportunity in the field, unfortunately, um, but it's so rewarding to get in. And, and there's so many people that are good and waiting to have a great career. Um, so um if if anybody ever you know if, if there's anything i can do or or whatever to be involved in in your students please feel free to reach out because i'm a huge proponent of that so tyler i want to talk about something that we're going to do as part of mvs that's right in that's right in line here so we're actually going to on may 19th have a mentorship day yeah. and so we've taken one day out of the magnet virtual summit and of course we're going to have talks that are focused around mentorship actually um dr clay of i play like a girl which i spoke about will be speaking uh daryl fife of cyber sleuths will be speaking jason jordan's going to be giving a great talk on mentorship but in addition we're going to have a virtual career fair we're going to have a virtual education fair where people can learn about different courses and education opportunities. And there's an opportunity to sign up for one-on-one -on -one sessions of uh, mentorship sessions where you do a resume review and a mock interview. Uh, then oh, wow. We have a bunch of amazing forensic professionals um, who have signed up to volunteer and give back in that way that day. Uh, so, yeah, so we're doing a whole bunch of things to hopefully help everybody level up. Uh, and that's really the whole concept of learning either how you can level up yourself or how you can help others. So it's a bi-directional bi mentorship day to help either people yeah. become mentors or find mentors. Amazing. You do so many uplifting things. You must have like a really rewarding professional life. 
you know what? I feel very, very lucky every day to be in this field and get to work with amazing people and get to introduce other people to this amazing field. Yeah, that's amazing. It's been a real pleasure um, just sitting down with you and, and doing this interview, Jessica. Um, so tell me about the future. What what are the some of the current projects in, in terms of tools and developments at Magnet that you're working on? If you can talk about them. Sure. Uh, yeah, we've yeah. got we've got a lot of things um, going on right now as we're getting ready for we'll release 5.0 uh in may right at the same time as the virtual summit and so we've got a lot of cool things coming there i don't think i'm allowed to speak specifically about those but i'll let you know that there's definitely new data sources there's definitely uh new things that are being incorporated we are doing a lot and have done a lot of integration and invention around uh, our remote collection capabilities so not only did we introduce remote collection capabilities recently, but we introduced it for not just Windows, but Mac and offline connect collection, which has been incredibly important. That's a big response to uh, the current pandemic to be able to do off network remote collections. Um, and we're doing a ton in terms of working with the cloud. Um, and cloud data sources. So in addition to being able to collect data sources like Dropbox and OneDrive and deal with warrant returns and self-archives like Google Takeout. Thank you, GDPR. Like that's the best thing to come out of GDPR or all the self-archives. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. but, but also being able to collect from environments like AWS and Azure, but then also being able to leverage AWS as a, a collection of clouds. So we're doing uh, wow. a ton there, uh, but then so many different things, right? So um, we just we just released a beta of the Chromebook acquisition tool. I'm doing a lot of research into data on the Chromebooks, which I've been working for a couple of years now, but also comparing that to what we're getting back from different cloud sources from Google. So just, just so many things, but I'd say a lot of our focus right now has also been on uh, providing methodology for automation and review. Just this last week, we released Review 3.0, and that's our uh, review platform to be able to share data um, from forensic investigations via the web with none or less technical stakeholders so that you can collaborate in real time. Uh, we Amazing. also uh, have done a lot of improvements to our automation tools, which automate not just magnets tools, but other tools that have CLIs and APIs so that you can build a robust digital forensics workflow. And the, the goal there is that you can democratize starting an investigation, but then the results are available to the digital forensics examiner up sooner right. so that they can spend more of that time not processing, but actually digging into the data, doing the deep analysis. So we spend a lot of our time at Magnet thinking about how we can surface results to you that you need to get to quickly, but then allowing you to be able to deep dive on those things you need to deep dive. Right. It shows. Um, you're, I love that you you describe your your tools as robust because that's exactly the way I, I see them. They're they're incredibly powerful and they are robust and, and they're frankly excellent value. Um, oh, thank you. For for people that that need them. So, um, well done. It's been uh, a real treat to sit down and talk to you and get to know you better. Such a pleasure. Um, I, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, I've, I've been 
Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. It's been nice to connect with you on LinkedIn. Um, where else would people be able to connect with you? Are you, are you a Twitter fan? Or are you on, I um, am a heavy user of Twitter. I'm at Bintahex. That's B1N2H3X because I love patterns and I love binary and hexadecimal. <laughs> so B1N2H3X uh, on Twitter. Showing. <laughs> and that's actually probably one of the best places uh, to, to ping me. I'm there. I'm also on the Digital Forensics Discord server, which is just a great resource for the community. Um, and on Twitter, though, I'm always sharing different resources, things I find. Um, so just lots of good information there. Good for you. I'm going to post all of those uh, links when I post this uh, episode. I'm really excited to, to produce this one and get it out. It's going to be uh, great for everybody listening. Despite all the news about data breaches, ransomware attacks, email fraud, and insider threats, most businesses don't have a plan when it comes to a cyber attack. In fact, most businesses don't know who to call when the worst happens. That costs them valuable time and a lot of money. Get a plan today. Go to dfiforensics.ca and learn about our custom-built incident response plans. We'll prepare a document that will guide your organization through every step of a data breach. Learn more today. Thank <music> you.